Welcome to the Wiz Show Podcast. New episodes every week. Welcome to the Wiz Show Podcast. My name is Stephen Strong, and this episode is not technically our first episode, but I wanted to get this out for you guys because it is very special. This is a Veterans Day tribute by the Swing Sisters. It's an amazing show, so I wanted to make sure that I intro this for you guys and let you know all the new podcasts will be coming here shortly. We are working on the studio right now, so stay tuned for that. Make sure you follow us on all the social platforms like Spotify, Apple Podcasts, and many more out there. Just let us know if there's one that we are missing and we'll get it out there for you. Without further ado, here's the Swing Sisters. Welcome to the Swing Sister Show. We are your hosts, Erin Patterson and Jamie Seibert. Today's show is dedicated to our country's veterans. Though we will be emphasizing the World War II years, this show is dedicated to all our veterans who served our country and to those who have given the ultimate sacrifice. For the next hour, we will be showcasing personal interviews with veterans, popular wartime music, and historic broadcasts. Let's kick off the show with a song you're sure to know. Here's the Andrew Sisters with Boogie Woogie Bugle Boy. He was a famous trumpet man from all Chicago way. He had a boogie style that no one else could play. He was a top man at his craft. But then his number came up and he was gone with the draft. He's in the army now, a blowin' reveille. He's the boogie-woogie bugle boy of Company B. They made him blow a bugle for his Uncle Sam. It really brought him down because he couldn't jam. The captain seemed to understand. Because the next day the cap went out and drafted a band. And now the company jumps when he plays reveille. He's the boogie-woogie bugle boy of Company B. A toot, a toot, a toot de a toot de blows it day to the bar. In boogie rhythm, you can't blow a note unless the bass and guitar is playing with them. He makes a company jump when he plays Reveille. He's the boogie woogie bugle boy of Company B. He was a boogie woogie bugle boy of Company B. And when he plays boogie woogie bugle, he was busy as a buzz bee. When he plays, he makes the company jump into the bar. He's a boogie boogie bugle boy of Company B. Do 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 da da do da 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 do do. He blows it eight to the bar. He can't blow a note if the bass and guitar isn't with him. And the company jumps when he plays Reveille. He's a boogie boogie bugle boy of Company B. Up the same way in the early bright They clap their hands and stamp their feet Because they know how he plays When someone gives him a beat He really breaks it up when he plays Reveille He's the boogie-woogie bugle boy of Company B And that was the Andrews Sisters with Boogie Woogie Bugle Boy, an iconic song that was first performed in the movie Buck Privates in 1941, and is one of the most recognizable songs from the era. King Crosby was one of the most popular entertainers throughout the 40s and beyond. Not only were his songs high on the charts, but his movies were hits, and his radio show that was dedicated to the war effort was listened to by millions. Here he is performing Hot Time in a town of Berlin with the Andrews Sisters. There'll be a hot time in the town of Berlin when the Yanks go marching in. 
I want to be their boy Spread some joy when they take old Berlin There'll be a hot time in the town of Berlin When the Brooklyn boys begin To take the joint apart and tear it down When they take old Berlin They're gonna start a row and show them how We paint the town back in Kokomo They're gonna take a hike through Hitler's Reich And change that hile to what you know, Joe There'll be a hot time in the town of Berlin When the Yanks go marching in You could never keep them happy down on the farm After they take Berlin A hot time in the town of Berlin when the Yanks go marching in. I wanna be their boy, spread some joy when they take over Berlin. And may I join you? There'll be a hot time in the town of Berlin when the Brooklyn boys begin to take the joint apart and tear it down when they take over Berlin. They're gonna start a row and show them how you paint the town back in Michigan. They're gonna take a hike through Hitler's Reich and change the hile to give me some skin. There'll be a hot time in the town of Berlin when the Yanks go marching in. You're never gonna keep them happy down on the farm after they take Berlin. C.P. Buck Slaw, and I was in the B Company, 38th Infantry, 2nd Division, Infantry, that means on the ground, and I was armed with a Browning automatic, 20 shot, and I just held one today, they took it, after 77 years I held it, or was it heavy, I was 18 when I, I turned 18 on the day 4-1 in Normandy, Omaha Beach, I turned, I turned 19, as soon as I got 18 they drafted me back when I was 12. And I come to Dallas, and they, oh, they you give you an inspection, you know, what you examine me. Fall out in this big building, there were three lines, young men lined up for this. Army, Navy, and Marines. So I, I looked at it, being an old country boy, I said, I'm going to get the one that's got a bed. Which one should I take? The Navy's got a bed every night. They on a ship. I got in the Navy line. There's a building, big building like that. That evening, they, they snapped the line and some of them said, that's your quota today. Shove me over in the infantry. That was all they was taking, that was the quota. They filled it up and they snapped the chain in front of me and put me over in the infantry. There wasn't nothing else I could do, you know. I mean, everybody, every young man was going to the service. We were in a rough time. And I didn't, I, I'm glad I served in the country. In the country. If I'd have wanted to went, my daddy wouldn't, he wouldn't want me to. I was just turned 18 when I got in there. My younger brother went to Japan, but the war was over. I went ahead and done my basic training in North Carolina. Yeah. Then I drove a truck in England. One day, I was, here come another colonel and a sergeant this time, and they had cosmoline, everything to waterproof the vehicle. You know what waterproofing is? That's making the world go underwater. Didn't go too long after that, they loaded me on a ship, and I drove, how they loaded it, I drove up on this web, and they picked it up. So, you know what a web is? It's just like a, like a net. And they let me down on this LSD. 
That's the, that's the thing that lets you down in the water and you drive off. Well, I drove off on that water at Normandy Beachhead, and it, it got to come up to here, and I, I pulled the throttle out, and I just stood, stood up and held on to the windshield. Water went, that truck went plumb underwater, so it, so it held out. The next day, they gave me a Browning automatic when I held a while ago, and I kept it from Normandy to the Battle of the Bulls. That's, that's five battles across, out of West. They had us pinned down. The Germans, had, you know what pinned down is, you can't, and they done killed several of us. So we call, finally called for a smoke screen. You know, you know what a smoke screen is? That's where they put a smoke in there, you can't see. So I, that gave me a chance to get over the hedgerow, and I got this drop on that young German officer that could speak English, and I kept sending him back down this down this, I had to, had to where I could see him. I said, tell him to come and see out. He'd come out in the Stars and Stripes, A Company, captured 31 Germans. But I'm in B Company. I turned them over to A Company, you know, when I captured them. But they're coming out in the Stars and Stripes that they captured 31 Germans. That was me. But here's one that was sticking my head, okay? I was crossing this creek, and I looked down, and I seen a white face shining. And I, I got over there to it, guess what? It was a little young, young German boy in a German uniform, about 12 years old. I said, Lord, I hope I didn't kill him. Now, that's what you wanted to know, it was anything like that happened. Killing people wasn't the only thing that happened. But I, I told I asked the Lord, I hope I didn't kill him. He was dressed in a German SS troop. Another time we was coming out, we'd, we'd, we'd cleared this house, and we came out the back of it. And there was, you know what a storm cellar is? You know, and that's dug in the ground. That your, your door is kind of slated, and you stand up. And I, I said, hey, Jack, let's look in there. We better check the storm cellar. So I go over and still just going in there. I just I just lean, lean over there and pull, pull the curtain back. Somebody inside puts it back. Pull it back. I said, I better come and see out. It was full of Germans. <laughs> so they, they, was ready to get, they was ready to give up. Well, that war wasn't very long, but year. And that, but that, that was all in a war. That was that. Mine was fighting all the time. I was in a year, year and a half. What a, the length of the war, that close to German lines, we, there was a little boy that come to our outfit every night, 12, 12 years old. Ever, he'd be there the next night. So finally Sergeant Richie, come here, son. Called him over there. Well, his mother had been killed and his daddy was captured. He was an officer in a war. So we took him, Sergeant Richie took him, and suited him out in small clothes, at least we could find. And so we, we kept him to the end of the war. And when the, we, we like, what were we gonna do, little Joe? We're going home. Camp Rocky Strike, that's where they shipped out. Sergeant Richie says, I know what I'm going to do. We put little Joe in the duffel bag. Okay, listen to me now. We put him in this duffel. And I took my pocket knife and I cut a hole right of where his nose was. You doing okay, little Joe? Yeah, I'm okay. And I went right up behind the gang plate, just, you know, just looking, just see nobody noticed. Talking to little Joe. I'm okay. We got on the ship a couple of days. Little Joe had to come out of that duffel bag because he had to get, you know, it get a little air, you know. So they authorities found him and they was going to turn that ship around. They said, hold it. No, you're not going to turn it. He is going to America. And they put him off at Ellis Island. And Sergeant Ritchie adopted him and, and made a Sergeant Rich was a teacher, school teacher, principal. He made him a. Now, here, now, now little Joe's two kids are, are teachers. That is an amazing story. He died last year. The best advice in the world is here we had to have the, the war history in school, teach the younger kids, and, and, and teach them to learn and bust their butt. If you're just tuning in, you are listening to Buck Sloan, who served in the European Theater with the 2nd Infantry Division, 38th Infantry Regiment, 1st Battalion, Company B. His unit participated in D-Day at Normandy and later in the Battle of the Bulge. 
Frances Fanny Rose Shore, who became known as Dinah Shore, was a top-rated female American singer of the 1940s and rose to fame as a musician during the big band era. She left lasting impressions on troops as a regular at the Hollywood Canteen and entertaining across Europe. These memories were held dear by the servicemen as they went into combat. Here's Dinah Shore with He Wears a Pair of Silver Wings from 1942. Some people say he's just a crazy guy To me he means a million other things For he's the one who taught this happy heart of mine to fly He wears a pair of silver wings And though it's pretty tough, the job he does above I wouldn't have him change it for a king An ordinary fellow In the uniform I love He wears a pair of silver wings I'm so full of pride when we go walking Every time he's home on With those wings on his tunic Me with my heart on my sleeve But when I'm left alone and we are far apart I sometimes wonder what tomorrow brings For I adore that crazy guy who taught my happy heart to wear a pair of silver Robert St. John in the NBC newsroom in New York. Ladies and gentlemen, we may be approaching a fateful hour. All night long, bulletins have been pouring in from Berlin claiming that D-Day is here, claiming that the invasion of Western Europe has begun. Uh, let me read you several of the latest bulletins. One says that a report, unconfirmed by allied sources, of course, says that heavy fighting is taking place between the Germans and invasion forces on the Normandy Peninsula, about 31 miles southwest of Le Havre. Another bulletin, also from Berlin Radio and unconfirmed, says that British-American landing operations against the western coast of Europe, from the sea and from the air, are stretching over the entire area between Cherbourg and Le Havre, a distance of about 60 miles. I repeat, there is no confirmation. And here's another bulletin just in. DNB, the German agency, says uh, this is unconfirmed that the most important airdromes in the area of the Normandy Peninsula of France have been wiped out. Now, I presume that means wiped out by the Allies. Uh, as you may have heard on earlier broadcasts, all three German news agencies have begun broadcasting uh, these stories that the invasion is here. But 
there is no allied confirmation as yet. The first report came out shortly after midnight, and since then we've been flooded with reports from Berlin. Paris Radio, strangely enough, has not confirmed any of these reports. Uh, and now we have just been informed that we can expect in a very few seconds, in a very few seconds, a very important broadcast from the British capital. And so now we take you to London. The text of communique number one will be released to the press and radio of the United Nations in ten seconds. Repeat, ten seconds from now. General Eisenhower, Allied naval forces, supported by strong air forces, began landing Allied armies this morning on the northern coast of France. The communique will be repeated. Under the command of General Eisenhower, Allied naval forces, supported by strong air forces, began landing Allied armies this morning on the northern coast of France. This ends the reading of communique number one from Supreme Headquarters, Allied Expeditionary Force. Ladies and gentlemen, this is New York, NBC Newsroom again. Men and women of the United States, this is a momentous hour in world history. This is the invasion of Hitler's Europe the zero hour of the second front. The men of General Dwight Eisenhower are leaving their landing barges, fighting their way up the beaches into the fortress of Nazi Europe. They are moving in from the sea to attack the enemy under a mammoth cloud of fighter planes, under a ceiling of screaming shells from Allied warships. The first news flashes do not say, but a large proportion of this assault is believed to be in the hands of American men. They are making the attack side by side with the British Tommies who were bombed and blasted out of Europe at Dunkirk. Now, at this hour, they are bombing and blasting their way back again. This is the European front, once again being established in fire and blood, not only by the Americans and British, but by many allies in the fight against Axis aggression. My name is David Blair Hamilton, and I served in the Air Army Air Force and the United States Air Force later, because I flew in World War II, Korea, and I got out, retired as a lieutenant colonel in the Cuban Missile Crisis, 1963, and I finally made lieutenant colonel. Which at that time wasn't too difficult. <laughs> the first place I went to for classification was Kelly Field in San Antonio. And there they put you through different tests to see whether you'd be pilot, navigator, or bombardier. And I got classified as pilot. And then they put us up on the hill. And we learned how to march and obstacle courses and classes on military intelligence and the, how to be an officer, really. Although we were a long way from being officers because we had to go through primary flying school, basic flying school, advanced flying school before we got commissioned. I got commissioned in March of 43, and I didn't go overseas till Christmas Day of 44, 43, no, 43, Christmas Day. West Palm Beach, Puerto Rico, British Guiana, Brazil, Ascension Island, then up through Africa. And I lost an engine going through the pass in Morocco and went to Agadir on single engine. And it was a winter time for the rich French, a winter resort. Beautiful hotels, 
The only outfit that was American that was there was an anti-submarine patrol from the Navy of PVYs. The twin-engine Catalina. And uh, I had nothing to do, so I went out with them one day. 21 hours in an airplane. How boring that was. We didn't see a German submarine anywhere. The thing I remember most had to do with the Normandy business, because we were the pathfinder of Normandy. There were 20 crews in the pathfinders. We were the tip of the spear who went into Europe. And we went in about three or four hours ahead of H hour, which was 7.30 on the beaches. I dropped my paratroopers at 2.15 in the morning. I took off on the day before D-Day and dropped my paratroopers at D-Day, early morning. There was a full moon that night, and we could see amazing amount of you can see from the air in a full moon deal. Right over our drop zone was a cloud bank, 800 feet up to 1,500 feet. I pulled a little bit away from my flight commander, and we went under the cloud, dropped our paratroopers and dove for the deck. But I had pulled out just far enough that I disentangled myself from them. 41 seconds after I dropped, my leader and the other wingman dropped. So we put all of our paratroopers right in the right place. 41 second difference. I never saw them again until I got back to England. The whole mission was about six hours and was sent to Fort Wayne, Indiana, Bearfield, from where I had left to go overseas. And bingo, bango, what next thing you know? I'm on a, I'm on a, what they call a bond tour. Ohio and Indiana with an orchestra, a girl singer, and we were broadcast too. We had a great time, yes. Learn to love America and study your constitution and protect it because it's the most valuable piece of paper ever written. And that's what I advise to these kids today. I say, listen to your parents, the good advice, you'll grow pretty fast once you're in your teens and you'll be able to throw some of it out, retain the good parts. And I think if you pay attention to the Constitution of the United States, it's the greatest piece of writing ever done. Thank you, Thomas Jefferson. You are just listening to Lieutenant Colonel David Hamilton, who is the last surviving Pathfinder pilot from the Normandy invasion. Mr. Hamilton's air crew, along with their cohorts in 19 other C-47s, received special training to accomplish the vital task of placing Elite Pathfinder teams from the 82nd Airborne at precise locations along the Normandy coast in occupied France. You are listening to the Swing Sisters Show Veterans Day Tribute on The Wiz Mix. Up next is Louis Jordan's rendition of G.I. Jive from 1944. Jack, that's the G.I. Jive. Rudely toot, jump in your suit, make a salute. I reboot after you wash and dress. More or less, you go get your breakfast from a beautiful little cafe they call a mess. Hey, Jack, when you convalesce. Out of your seat, into the street, make with your feet, or read. If you're PVT, your duty is to salute the L-I-E-U-T. But if you brush the L-I-E-U-T, the MP makes you can't be on the QT. It's 
Thomas Boney, and I was in the Air Force in 1950 to 1954, and I went over to Korea, over, flew over Korea from Okinawa. I worked on B-29s, I was an a and mechanic. I worked on the engines and the aircraft. I enlisted in 19, or June of 1950 after I got out of high school. That's when uh, the Korean War started, in July, uh, March, April, May. April and June, May, June, is when they came across the border. And, and uh, I just got out of high school, so I didn't want to go in the Army. I didn't want to be shot at, so I went in the Air Force. When I went in, I had ODs, too. And then about six months later, they gave me, uh, I had to buy the new blues. I mean, it's the whole family, there was 45, I say 25 of my family went to World War II. My uncle and his son was the first, they were in the Red Cross Corps, or, well, you know, uh, not the Red Cross, but they were in the uh, hospital corps. And they were the first ones that went in, got into the first American, you know, and they, he said it was all wrong. And I just went in to keep them from coming here. I wanted, that's why I enlisted. My dad enlisted, and I enlisted to keep anybody from coming here. Well, uh, I went to Lackland Air Force Base when I went in, and that was, was just, they just changed it, I think, to six weeks of training. And then from there, I went to Palo uh, Technical Institute in California for my A&E training, aircraft and engine. And I was there for nine months. We stationed in uh, Okinawa. There's two Air Force bases on Okinawa. One of them looked like a fighter place, and we had the B-29s at Kadena. And we were on, actually by jet, 35 minutes flying time from China. It's the big city that everybody wants to go to in China. It's on the ocean, but they wouldn't let us even go there because of and we were always on alert for Chinese planes. I seen one plane blow up. A missile went into the bomb bay after they opened it up over Korea. A missile went in it like that. I enjoyed the service, I put it that way. If I hadn't, if my dad hadn't wanted me to come and get out, I would have stayed in. I could tell you more. I've seen some other stuff. i seen an airplane come in on Okinawa coming back from a mission. The tail of it broke off and spun around. The tail gunner got out and running the other way. The plane scooted up another about 150, 200 yards and it blew up. He was the only one that got out of it. So, I mean, that, I mean you just don't talk about it. 
Tom Boney, who you were just listening to, served during the Korean War, where he worked on the B-29 Superfortress, a heavy U.S. bomber used in World War II and the Korean War. Glenn Miller was the best-selling recording artist from 1939 to 1942, leading one of the best-known big bands. In 1942, he volunteered to join the U.S. military. Sadly, on December 15, 1944, his aircraft disappeared in bad weather over the English Channel. After his disappearance, he was awarded the Bronze Star Medal for his service. Here's Glenn Miller's In the Mood. Thank you. 
our planes was missing, two hours overdue. One of our planes was missing with all its gallant crew. The radio sets were humming, they waited for the word. Then a voice broke through the humming, and this is what they heard. Coming in on a wing and a prayer. Coming in on a wing and a prayer. Though there's one motor gone, we can still carry on. Coming in on a wing and a prayer. What a show, what a fight. Yes, we really hit our target for tonight. How we sing as we limp through the air. Look below, there's our field over there. With our full crew aboard and our trust in the Lord, we're coming in on a wing and a prayer. How we sing as we limp through the air. Look below, there's our field over there. With our full crew aboard and our trust in the Lord, we're coming in on a wing and a prayer. My name is Joe McPhail. I spell M-C-P-H-A-I-L. And uh, my rank is Colonel. Really? Uh, I made Colonel in oh, 1964. Yeah. Yeah. I retired from Marine Corps after 32 years, and I also flew uh, for a gas transmission company in, in Houston for 33 years. There, there. We, we had airplanes that carried people. Uh, it wasn't just the pipeline. It was, was carrying mechanics, anybody else. And uh, it was a nice airplane. Yeah, it was a, what they call a Gulfstream II. And, uh, you know, we could fly to Paris, France uh, with one stop in Gander, Newfoundland. Uh, so that's a pretty good trip, yeah. It carried 12 passengers, and so uh, I, I enjoyed it. It was fun. Uh, I, I enlisted on December the 4th, 1941, and that was Thursday, and Pearl Harbor was Sunday. I got hooked on flying uh, through civilian pilot training. Flew 40 hours that summer of 41, and, and like I say, got, got hooked on flying and wanted to continue. And I talked to the military, and they said, Well, you got to be 20 years old and have 60 hours of college. And I had the 60 hours of college, two years of junior, junior college, um, but I wasn't 20. Uh, eight days after I was 20, I was sworn in downtown Dallas, uh, and, uh, but they didn't call me up until December the 4th. You know, they knew that I liked to fly, and, and that's all I've ever done. I, I never have done anything else but fly. <laughs> I have about 17,000 hours. 4,000 hours of that was military, both World War II and Korea. And, uh, but the other was, you know, primarily with the company. I, I went overseas uh, in January of 43 and joined the fighter squadron in, in Samoa, American Samoa. And uh, find Grumman Wildcats. That's good. You'll be addicted. Uh, it was a pretty primitive airplane. It didn't have a hydraulic system. You cranked the gear up and you cranked the gear down. It didn't even have a starter. They, they had a 
shotgun shell had a breach in the right landing gear and he pulled the T handle and fired that shotgun shell. It spun the prop and that way you get the thing started. But later on, uh, Corsair, my favorite airplane, it, it had a hydraulic system and uh, it, everything was easy. Well, no, it was, you know, I went overseas twice uh, in World War II. I went over after that first time. Uh, I came back to the States and instructed, and then I went overseas again in January of '45, and stayed until the war ended. And, uh, I stayed in, in what we call a reserve, a weekend warrior. Go to two weeks active duty every year. And, uh, so it was a good thing I did that, uh, you know, because I was able to maintain my rank and time in service there. So when the Korean War started, well, it started in June of 50, and that's how I made Bird Colonel, uh, you know, to stand in that long. You need to like to fly, you know. It, it isn't something like a job or anything like that. It's something that I really love to do. Uh, you know, I'm, I'm over 100 years old now, and so it, it, it's uh, too bad that I, I can still fly, but I don't even drive. That was Coming In on a Wing and a Prayer by Ann Shelton, followed by our interview with Colonel Joe McPhail, who just turned 100 years old. Colonel McPhail was a Marine combat pilot who flew the Corsair in the Pacific Theater of World War II and also during the Korean War in the Death Rattler Squadron. President Truman announced the official surrender. This is a solemn but glorious hour. I wish that Franklin D. Roosevelt had lived to see this day. General Eisenhower informs me that the forces of Germany have surrendered to the United Nations. The flags of freedom fly all over Europe. For this victory, we join in offering our thanks to the providence which has guided and sustained us through the dark days of adversity and into light. Much remains to be done. The victory won in the West must now be won in the East. The whole world must be cleansed of the evil from which half the world has been freed. United, the peace-loving nations have demonstrated in the West that their arms are stronger by far than the might of dictators or the tyranny of military cliques that once called us soft and weak. The power of our peoples to defend themselves against all enemies will be proved in the Pacific War as it was proved in Europe. You are listening to the Swing Sisters Show, Veterans Day Tribute on the Wismix. Here's the Andrews Sisters with Three Little Sisters. Soldiers, tell it to the sailors, and tell it to the Marines. <laughs> 
Division, 28th Marines, 2nd Battalion, Dog Company. There was no, was no draft. We joined. We walked out of school and joined. When I enlisted, my mother was very furious. Oh, she didn't want that to happen. But my dad talked her into it. Yeah, he was a Marine in the First World War. You know, parents didn't, especially mothers. They weren't too happy about that because a lot of them went through the First World War. Yeah, they know what could happen, you know. So it was a little tough on them. Otherwise, it, I left, I went, and that was it. I had one leave in four years. Well, the first time I went over, I went to New Zealand, and we trained there, and then they broke us up. They broke the Raiders up, they broke the paratroopers up, and formed the, helped form the 5th Division. And we were designed to take Iwo Jima, although we didn't know this. Just like I said this morning, yeah. And uh, then it became a reality. And it was a bad battle. Uh, on the beach, I had 300 men in my, my company. And six weeks later, when we were released, 18 of us walked off, no officers. That picture's got him carrying the flag up. It's right there. While they were doing that, we were fighting our way up this way. So when they got up around there, and you know, we didn't know anything about a flag. We didn't know what they were doing. And then all of a sudden, someone said, they're, they're, they're fixing to put the flag up. I said, on what? They don't even have a pole. I don't know, but they're going to put it up. They found drain pipe up there. If you look at that pole, it's got a hole on the end. They caught rainwater and let it go down in the caves. They didn't have any water. They had no water. That's one of the reasons some of them surrendered. They, we made our water. We, we purified our water. But they didn't have anything like that. Yeah. I had one come up to me and say, John, let me understand this. You guys walked out of school, I said, yeah. You joined the Marine Corps, yeah. How could you do that? I said, so you can stand there and ask me that question. Didn't understand. Don Graves landed on Iwo Jima on February 19th at 8 in the morning as part of the third wave, carrying with him a flamethrower that weighed 72 pounds. Don was present at the infamous raising of the American flag, saying he was just right out of the viewpoint of the group photo. The day of days for America and her allies. Crowds before the White House await the announcement from the president that the Japs have surrendered unconditionally. received this afternoon a message from the Japanese government in reply to the message forwarded to that government by the Secretary of State on August 11th. I deem this reply a full acceptance of the Potsdam Declaration, which specifies the unconditional surrender of Japan. In the reply, there is no qualification. Arrangements are now being made for the formal signing of the surrender terms at the earliest possible moment. General Douglas MacArthur has been appointed the Supreme Allied Commander to receive the Japanese surrender. Great Britain, Russia, and China will be represented by high-ranking officers. Meantime, 
the Allied armed forces have been ordered to suspend offensive action. The proclamation of VJ Day must await upon the formal signing of the surrender terms by Japan. We would like to thank all of you for joining us for our Veterans Day tribute. We would also like to send a special thank you out to the amazing veterans who we were honored to interview with. Buck Sloan, Lieutenant Colonel David Hamilton, Tom Boney, Colonel Joe McPhail, and Don Graves. And to the men and women who served or are serving our country, thank you from the bottom of our hearts. This is Jamie and Aaron wishing you a happy Veterans Day. Be sure to thank a veteran today. And now we take great pleasure in presenting to you the star of our program, Miss Kate Smith. Hello, everybody. It is my happy privilege to introduce a new song, God Bless America. Kind of makes you think of Blake, doesn't it? Makes you think of a lot of things. We're going to be in this yet, Mom. Hello, son. 
Hi, ma'am. Hello, darling. New song? Brand new, first time in the year. Brand new, my eye. You know, I threw that song out of Yip Yip Yap Hank 22 years ago. Sounds better now. <laughs> <laughs>